somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 55 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, Curious Tales from BordersofSleep.com, created and voiced by your host, Seymour Jacklin. At BordersofSleep.com you can find more information and leave feedback, or join the email list to get the inside scoop on what I'm up to and the inspiration behind the stories, or find out how to support me to keep writing. It would be lovely to meet you on Facebook too. I love hearing from listeners, however you might get in touch, and I will always try to respond. The soundtrack for this episode is by Juan Sanchez from the album Rebirth, available on magnitude.com. And if you listen carefully, there are also a couple of numbers from Tommy Dorsey. So, if you are ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. The Cadillac in the Pond by Seymour Jacklin Reuben woke with the dawn as he usually did. It's a wonder he wasn't woken up by the incident that must have taken place a mere hundred yards from his room in the small hours of the morning. But I'm getting ahead of myself there. He woke to a morning much like hundreds that had preceded it. Lucas... His grey tabby was massaging the quilt right next to his face and purring loudly. Once Lucas had decided he'd had enough sleep for the night, there was no chance of a lion. Not that he wanted one. Most days were full of fresh promise, and he'd rested well. He sat up and swung his feet to the floor, feeling the stiffening objection of his calves and thighs since he'd spent most of the previous day in the saddle. He steadied himself against the narrow walls of his room before he took his first steps into the new day. There were no windows in this room as it was set back in the villa, burrowed into the hillside, but light came through the archway that led to the rest of the lower floor which was a kind of platform that stood out from the slope, giving an open aspect to the road and the sea that lay beyond. The blue walls of his villa seemed to be contiguous with the mist that lay below it. He never outgrew the delightful impression that the house had been floating in the clouds all night and was gently returning to earth as the morning dispersed and the surrounding coastal hills appeared in the low morning sunlight. He climbed to the level above him. This was by way of a ladder, a rude affair that he'd always intended to replace with a proper staircase, but had never got around to doing so. He called it a villa. That was perhaps the most appropriate approximation of an architectural label for his home. 
it was really a work of whimsy. It betrayed a precarious trust in the benevolence of the climate. The villa was folk architecture. Had it been constructed with glass and concrete, it would have been at home with modern masterpieces of living space in the most fashionable magazines. But Reuben had laid every beam and skimmed every inch of plaster himself. Much of the construction material had been taken from the old villa on the property, now a low ruin that had been assumed into the land and provided sumptuous accommodation to bright lizards and scurrying dormice, more life than it had ever held as a human residence. The upper room of the villa was styled like a portico. It served as a kitchen, reception and dining area. Archways at the front of the house led directly onto a sun deck, but he most loved to be here on a rainy day, when he could sit close to the stove and look out on the darts of rainwater sheeting down just a few feet away, unmediated by glass and eliciting the smell of earth and wood from the surroundings. He had a wood stove where he could heat water, as well as a brick-built grill for cooking over charcoal. Sometimes the coals of the evening before would have enough life in them to restart in the morning, and on other days, like today, he needed to make a new fire. It was different every time, for each morning, the particular combinations of fuel and the atmospheric conditions would call for the skillful preparation of elements to get a good heat. As he fussed with the kindling and stacked the charcoal, Reuben thought of nothing else but the task in hand. While the fire was quickening, Reuben made tortillas for breakfast, rolling the corn dough into small balls and patting them flat between his hands. Again, he did this every morning, with practiced movements he'd inherited from his mother, and yet the variations in the consistency of the flour and the temperature of the water and a hundred subtle variables called for a synthesis of his senses and movements. When it came to cooking them on the comal, he liked to let them burn a bit on one side, where the dough bubbled up in the heat. When the tortillas were done, he spooned out a portion of the cold beans with onions and peppers from the pot on the stove, and took them out onto the sun deck. He sat on the edge, with his legs dangling down the outer wall of the house, while he ate and looked out over the valley. There was nothing urgent to do today, but he intended to wade into the pond to cut back the rushes. Not only did this keep them from spreading and clogging the banks of the pond, but they also, when dried, had multiple uses in repairing things, and as a ground covering where it got damp or the animals trampled. Before he cut the rushes, he would need to sharpen his hook, which meant hauling the grindstone out from the back of the stables. So, the day would unfold with its own sequence of events and continue as it had begun. After breakfast, Reuben went up to the pond. It lay above the villa, in a natural dip that had been banked up on the lower side, and it was fed by a spring. Its surface was still and grey as there was no breeze today, and he noticed immediately the strange, shiny object in the water. The ducks were upending themselves as they grazed in the shallows, 
taking no notice of the alien object. It seemed to be the single, chrome-lidded eye of a motorcar's headlight, fixed to a sleek, pale body, most of which was underwater. The car had settled into the pond at an angle. Apart from the headlamp, a portion of the windshield showed above the surface. Thank goodness it was not a saloon, so there couldn't be anyone trapped inside, but Reuben called out, Hello? Whack, 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 said one of the ducks. Scoured tracks in the mud by the pond showed where the car must have come careening off the road and down the slope, narrowly missing a row of vines. But it must have been in reverse, because it was now pointing back out of the pond in the direction it had come from. That was some crash, some splash. Reuben pictured the scene, the Cadillac, with all four wheels in the air bouncing down the slope in reverse while the driver flopped about helpless in their seat like a rag doll, then the muddied splash as it hit the pond, and a sudden anticlimactic silence as it slid down and settled into the mud, gasping bubbles from under the hood. Then the driver hauling their sodden form up the bank, looking as if one of the bog-footed willow stumps had grown legs and walked. Would the owner come back for it, he wondered, or had it been abandoned and technically become his property? Either way, it was his problem now. He quickly discarded the idea of leaving it in the pond. If he left it there, it would quickly become a rusting piece of junk. It would be better at least to haul it out onto dry land if he could. He didn't have an alternative plan, but he felt that things would unfold if he just kept moving. He walked uphill to the shed where the chickens lived and where he kept his waders hanging in the dark with his rakes and hose. It smelt of chicken feathers and rubber and straw. Duly equipped, he went back to the soggy bank of the pond. Underwater, the carp mooched about the car, like dazed bystanders, moving away lazily as he waded towards them. Leaning his weight against the protruding headlight, he was able to move the motor car a few inches. A couple of big bubbles belched up from the depths as it settled a little deeper into the mud. He could shift it. That was good. With a decent length of rope and a winch and tackle, he figured he'd be able to haul the thing out of the pond altogether. He had the equipment for moving wine barrels around up in the winery, so a plan began to come together. He could secure the gear to the old oak. On returning with the bits and pieces, he got the end of the rope hooked under the bumper of the Cadillac and played it back to the oak. The old tree was already braced like the anchorman in a tug-of-war team, leaning back and throwing one great root towards the pond. As he tightened it up, the rope went rigid with a ripping sound. Droplets scurried down its length and dropped off like a row of paratroopers making a jump. It held, and as he continued to tighten the winch, the Cadillac came too, slowly, straining at the leash. What a creature she was, sleek as a rocket, and her flanks were coloured just at the edge of pink, becoming white, 
She had a porpoise-headed streamlined shape to her bonnet and high fins at the back. The cockpit was full of water that was gushing out of the doors as if she had watery wings too. At the edge of the bank, the pulling became harder without the buoyancy of the water to help. The oak kept its immovable footing without a whimper of complaint and the Cadillac crept up onto dry land. And it may have been how the light changed just at that moment, for the sun finally broke through the rising morning mist, but as soon as she had fully emerged from the pond, she seemed less like a fish and more like an earthbound angel. Now as the sun climbed, it could clearly be seen to have a slight blush to it, rendering it a creamy pink. Not offensive, somehow classy. A few reeds were trailing off the bumper. Reuben slicked them off as he unhooked the rope, and there she stood, dripping and gleaming, assertive. Her hooded headlamp eyes looked at him innocently, and the wide grill of her mouth gave him a dazzling smile, as if she went swimming every day. Won't you please be a dear and fetch my towel? Reuben found himself grinning back. Don't be ridiculous, he said to himself. It's just a car. Nevertheless, he went back to the villa for a towel. When he returned, the sun was already doing a good job of drying. He mopped up around the white trim inside and padded the droplets off the dashboard, noticing that the keys were still in the ignition. Everything looked brand new, and he surmised that perhaps it was on her maiden voyage, fresh from the dealer's forecourt, that she had decided to go diving. I don't really care for cars, he muttered, stepping back to look at her. But I can see the appeal. All thoughts of reed-cutting today had been superseded, but he was unsure what had come in their place. He busied himself, packing away the rope gear, struggled out of the waders, and remembered to feed the chickens while he was back at the shed. Then he went back to the Cadillac, and sat himself in front of the steering wheel. It felt terribly low to the ground compared to the old truck he used, only very occasionally for deliveries from the winery. He looked up the slope, past the vines, where last night's tracks led back to the road. The last time he'd felt like this was at a fairground in his boyhood, sitting in a bumper car, waiting for the ride to start. And there was a sudden little explosion in his chest that sounded like, Why not? He tried the ignition key. The Cadillac gave a shudder and a little whine, and then fell silent. He found the choke and eased it out a little and tried again. This time, the whine descended to a roar and then modulated to a pulsating purr. He was trembling, but he steadied his hands on the steering wheel and his feet on the pedals and eased in the gears. It was smooth and felt more like a ship than a motor car, but the sense of power hauling him up towards the road was a little scary past the rows of vines and the chickens and the stable, and down the bank onto the road. He wanted to turn her about and run down towards the coast, but he wasn't sure of making it in a single turn, so he continued up the slope, past Martha's place on the right and over the brow of the hill, 
where the road flattened out. There was a huge open sky up here. Most of the island was a plateau of scrub and grassland on thin soils that clung to the granite bedrock. There were a few other vineyards and farmsteads scattered about wherever water could be farmed, growing apricots and oranges, and hosting roving flocks of the hardy local variety of sheep that looked more like goats. Small conurbations gathered on the slopes around the coast, but most of the inhabitants had their own eccentric residencies out in the sticks, much like Rubens. The sun kept climbing and becoming hotter and whiter. It felt like a mirror, reflecting back to him the warmth of his sudden joy and exhilaration. He took a left at the junction at the top of the hill. This road would eventually loop around and bring him back along the coastline towards his own acreage. He was gliding. The tyres murmured on the road more loudly than the cadence of the engine that had a stalking smoothness to it, like a lioness keeping her power in check. For a moment his thoughts intruded, trying to make him think rationally about the events of the day so far. Was he technically stealing a car? What was really happening here? But he let them fall behind him as he rode on. Soon he was going downhill again. The sea grew wider and wider ahead of him, a becalmed extension of the sky, cooling the air that rushed past his ears. The sun was warming the back of his hands on the top of the steering wheel. As the road dropped away, he could have been flying. He could have been the only person in the world. Nobody moved on the balconies and terraces of the villas he passed, or worked in the fields. But a seagull dropped down and floated beside him for a little way, looking at him sideways, as if it couldn't quite believe what it was seeing. There was no temptation to go any faster. The day was setting its own pace, and he was content to go along. This was a life. Well, perhaps a piece of somebody else's life, in which he was in the driving seat for now. But he could enjoy it. Just following the curve of the road with the sea to his right and the hillsides to his left. His blue villa came into sight again, fresh and angular against the ancient undulations of the slope, floating above the olive grove that grew right down to the roadside. He came off the coastal road and back up to his vineyard. He pulled the Cadillac off the road just above the shed, close to where it must have come a cropper the night before, and ended his trip there. He left it visible from the road. He thought somebody might see it, and know who it should belong to. He knew he should make an effort to do some thinking about what to do next, whether the rightful owner appeared or not, but the best way to do some thinking on something like this was to get busy with something else, and it would all sort itself out. That usually worked. On his way back down to the villa, he collected the eggs from the henhouse. The earth blasted the sun's heat back at him, but inside the villa it was cool and still. It was going to be another hot day. He should do something indoors, or perhaps, after all, he would attend to the pond. Late in the afternoon, Reuben was due to go up to Martha's 
to participate in her monthly book club. It was more of a social occasion than an intellectual one, and he always looked forward to it. The same reliable huddle of casual friends, nothing too serious. Indeed, fairly early on, they had even dispensed with having a set text for each occasion, and instead they loosely discussed what they had been reading recently, and exchanged recommendations, and held forth their opinions. Nobody came about the Cadillac. When his day's work was done, Reuben shook out of his sweaty, pond-soaked day clothes, and washed at the basin by the stove. He put on a cotton shirt and his light linen suit. The jacket and trousers were terrible for holding on to crumples and creases, but freshly pressed, they made him feel tall and clean, and they suited the warm evenings. On his way up to Martha's, he stopped by the winery for a bottle of his homegrown special reserve, and then he checked on the Cadillac. She seemed to be waiting for a date. There he was, in his linen suit with a bottle of wine in hand, and there she was, with her chrome gleaming in the mellowing light, ready to whisk him away to a night spot where there would be neon lights and music. Ha! Not tonight, my dear. I'm sorry, he said, leaning in to whisper. I have a prior engagement. Martha's was a shotgun shack at the front that had been added to extensively in various stages out the back to be much deeper than it was wide. He could hear voices, so he went round the side. Martha had a table out under the magnolia, spread with a red, checked cloth and weighed down, as usual, with homemade offerings. Little freckled savoury pies that would go down in two bites, and lemon finger buns, fresh and perspiring slightly on their iced tops. Everyone was there. Dieter and Amelia were seated, Lucien was standing and leaning his long whip of willow form over the treats, and Martha was just coming down from the house with another plateful of delights. Reuben suddenly noticed how upright they all looked, not stiff, but poised, as if they were part of a painted classical tableau. Martha was petite, light on her feet, like a dancer, and wore her dark hair in a close bob. Dieter was almost as tall as Lucien when she stood up, but she was sitting on the other side of Amelia with her head inclined in conversation so that her red hair had curtained over the side of her face. Amelia almost had her back to him. Her fair hair was bound into a neat French plait, but the frizz of a few escaped hairs caught the light and gave her a sort of halo. Martha deposited her plate on the table and waved. And here's Reuben, she announced. Amelia looked up and around. And aren't his buttons shiny and well-buttoned, she said, as one might congratulate a youngster on tying their shoelaces. Reuben avoided her eyes and waved the wine bottle. Emergency supplies, he said. Oh, thank you. Is that one of yours? said Martha, taking the bottle. Reuben nodded. Lucien appointed himself as a sommelier and uncorked it and started offering it around. 
I think I'll have a cup of tea, thanks, said Reuben. He sat down next to Martha. They had a quorum. At some point, they might even get round to discussing books. Martha poured tea and asked him how his day had been. He was too perplexed about the Cadillac in the pond to mention it, and it wouldn't be like Martha to be asking him about something she already knew. So he answered generically, while paying close attention to the steaming column of amber tea between the teapot and his cup as Martha poured. He was half aware that Amelia had turned her blue eyes back to Dita in conversation. Now she held a glass of his special reserve red close by her ear, curling her wrist and tucking her head to one side. Well, I wouldn't put too fine a point on it, but this one's a little jammy for my taste. It seems rushed to me, but that's to be expected from such a young vineyard. This is its only its second year, I believe. It wouldn't be so bad to wash down with a well-seasoned game pie, I suppose. She was talking to everyone, really, and using Dita as a prop. She'd certainly intended for Reuben to overhear her little dig. Amelia herself had inherited a string of well-established vineyards, and Reuben's own modest estate was a comparatively rude upstart enterprise. He sat back and blinked at her, feigning offence. Martha prodded him with her foot from the chair next to him, and mouthed, I'm so sorry, rolling her eyes in Amelia's direction. Reuben shook his head and grinned. In truth, he thought any sort of attention from Amelia was delicious, and she could bleat in my ear like that for the rest of my life, he thought. I don't mind, he whispered back to Martha, noticing, as he did, how perfectly shaped and doll-like Martha's head was, and her tiny ears were pinned with pearls, exquisitely coloured with a soft blush, and he wondered why he didn't find her every bit as attractive as the shriller and blonder Amelia. He saw more of Martha, they were on easy and familiar terms as neighbours, and helped each other out however they could. And Martha would never poke fun at him. On the other side of Martha, Lucian was warming his side of the table with his genial presence. Lucian was a lawyer and studious, and generally of few words, most of which were questions, which is often the way of a lawyer. Reuben wouldn't admit to himself that there was any jealousy, but he was quietly very aware of how much attention the others paid to Lucian, and always felt he came off slightly worse. For almost a year it had been the same, meeting like this, with the thrill of it and the perhapsness of their glances and laughter and teasing, a sweet cordial that depended very much on how long they would all remain uncoupled. He didn't like the word flirting. That sounded cheap. Mutual admiration with a helping of jocularity to take the edge off, perhaps. The right balance of looseness and refinement. More like a folk dance at a country fair than a tango in a ballroom. Dita was a journalist, travelled a lot, and provided a kind of foil to Lucian's reserve. She had a wide mouth, 
It wasn't unattractive once you got used to it, but it always gave Reuben the feeling that he might be gobbled up. She used the full range of expression available to her lips. He sometimes caught himself staring at them like they were living creatures, independent of their owner. Dieter and Amelia, who had seemed to be discussing something only of interest to the two of them, suddenly finished their conversation and turned their attention back to the rest of the group. But it stalled things for a moment, and Reuben saw the opportunity to bring up his burning question of the moment. He caught Lucien's eye. I have a legal conundrum, he said. Lucien shot his cuffs out and pressed his fingertips together in an arch. Reuben took this as permission to continue. Suppose... A farmer finds an abandoned vehicle in one of his fields one day and has no idea who owns it. Is he entitled to keep it? Finders keepers, surely, said Martha. Lucien pursed his lips. I have a feeling it's not so simple as that, said Reuben to Lucien, who nodded. Indeed, let me put it another way, said Lucien. Suppose someone stole your motor car and abandoned it in a farmer's field. Do you think ownership of your car should automatically pass to the farmer? Of course not, said Amelia. So it depends on whether it's stolen or not, Reuben asked. It depends on a lot of things. Well, suppose the owner had been driving it under the influence and they swerved off the road and into a farmer's field and fearing that they would be prosecuted for drunk driving, they fled the scene, and to return to claim it would be an admission of guilt, so they cut their losses. Well, yes, if you could prove any of that, they would be looking at convictions for driving under the influence, possibly fly-tipping, as well as potentially trespass, and damages to property. So it's almost certainly not worth their while owning up, it would be cheaper to replace the vehicle. Why do you ask? Oh, I just had a strange dream about it, that's all. It got me wondering. Then a psychoanalyst may be more help to you than a lawyer, I'm afraid, said Lucian. Feel free to move from the witness stand to the couch, Reuben, said Dita, waving her wine glass. It was game on. But Reuben blushed. He felt Amelia looking at him and he'd not volunteered to be the evening's entertainment. She was welcome to mock him all she liked, but he didn't want the others to have an open season on him, not while she was watching. Martha was wagging her foot. She sensed that Reuben had had enough of being the focus of attention and was looking for an opportunity to change the subject. But Dita was warming to her theme. The field is your ego, obviously, she quipped. I suppose the car is something that has been thrust upon you by your mysterious unconscious, and you're conflicted about owning it and whether it really belongs to you. Maybe this comes from your shadow, and your task is to integrate it. And when you have done that, you will have something useful and the ability to travel to wonderful places, she concluded. Brilliant, said Amelia. Admittedly, it was. Dita had barely paused for a breath. It had 
just flowed from her, and the rest of the company looked at her with a new admiration. How much do you charge? asked Lucian. One bottle of Reuben's special reserve per hour, Martha suggested, reaching for the bottle to refill Dieter's glass. Yes, and I will share it with my friends, said Dieter. They all joined in the laughter, and Reuben felt like he'd come out on top of things without saying a word. For the moment, he would drink, and temporarily disregard his nagging secret that the whole incident with the Cadillac had really happened, and no amount of psychoanalysis would resolve that. So, what's anyone been reading? Martha asked. The preamble was over, and so to some extent was the larking about, but they kept things light, and were soon absorbed in the talk of the books that they had ostensibly come for. They talked until sunset, before people started making noises about leaving, and then they talked a little more, until Dieter stood up and somehow brought the tablecloth with her and gave a whoop of laughter. Everyone sprang to their feet, also laughing, while they tried to steady the wine glasses and catch the falling plates, most of which were mercifully empty. The evening, however, seemed to have played itself to a fitting climax that they would remember and laugh about next time. The friends helped to clear things back to Martha's kitchen and lined up to say their goodbyes and depart, leaving an impressive silence behind them. Reuben didn't feel quite ready to go back to his own place just yet. He noticed the empty plates and glasses by Martha's sink and offered to wash up. No, leave it, I'll do it in the morning, she said, turning him and propelling him away from the sink with both her hands on his back. We could do it now in half the time and go on, said Reuben, a little louder than he intended to because of the wine. No. Come back in the morning if you like, but I'm done for the day. How about a neighbourly nightcap? They went to sit on Martha's porch. She disappeared for a few moments, and must have put a record on, for the sound of an orchestra began to issue from the front room. She reappeared with two glasses and a bottle of rum. Tommy Dorsey? Reuben asked. My favourite accompaniment to the end of the day, said Martha. They just sat and listened to Dorsey's trombone as the notes floated out into the night and the air seemed to fill with dancing droplets. From here, a part of the view overlooked Reuben's property and he could make out the dark gleam of the pond reflecting the first few stars appearing above. Reuben stole a glance at his neighbour. Martha had closed her eyes and sat perfectly still so he let himself stare a little. She was pretty, and of course it wasn't the first time he'd noticed it. He also liked what they had. Mutual hospitality, neighbourliness, common intellectual interests, and the ability to just sit in silence without having to fill it. An odd thought came to him. He realised all of a sudden that if Martha needed anything, he would move the earth for her if he could. What was that? Devotion? What about Amelia? 
Well, she made him dizzy. It was more of an intoxication, and the more remote she seemed, the more fascinated he became. She wouldn't take to burnt tortillas for breakfast, that's for sure. But would she be charmed by a ride in a Cadillac? Then here was Martha again. Her nearness radiated into him from an arm's reach away. And the music, and the, well, the wine was working on his head, and he needed to go home before he did anything daft. It was a lovely evening, thank you, he said, adding, I will come back in the morning, so don't touch the dishes until I do. Okay, said Martha, beaming at him. Reuben took one step down off the porch and looked back. Martha was standing above him, her silhouette with the halo of the lamp and its fuss of midges dancing around like sparks behind her head. He hesitated, swaying slightly, then mumbled, Okay, thank you. Good night, she said. Good night. The moon was up, but most of Martha's front garden was in the shadow of the cypress at the borders of her property. Reuben walked back to the road, watching his feet carefully. Just as he reached it, an owl flew close past his right shoulder and out in front of him, a white-winged feline in the night. It was near enough to hear the whomp of its wings before it disappeared towards the sea. For a fanciful moment his drunken head connected the owl and the Cadillac, and he mused that one was the spirit of the other, and it was hastening back to its body before he got there. The way the road plunged away from him downhill, and the slight dizziness in his head, made him feel as if he was flying too. He could hear the sea fussing at the coastline below. The Cadillac was as he had left it, in daylight, but now a ghostly creature with silvery accents, and moonlight on her contours, more fish-like than ever. He stopped a few yards away, and felt the night listening all around him. God, she's magnificent, he said out loud to the stars. And whether he was referring to the Cadillac, or Martha, or Dieter, or Amelia, or somehow all at once together summarised in a great she he wasn't sure, and it didn't matter. Whack, 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 said the ducks on the pond. <laughs>